Thanks for listening to DIY for Business. It's Russ and Greg with you. And Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Russ? I'm doing all right. You know, it's 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 uh it's hard to believe we're this deep into the season. And and I I love that. Uh, you know, like season 2. It, it it just feels like, wow, we're we're already I don't know, even I don't know how many episodes that's how that's how many episodes we're in at this point for season two. So it's very exciting. And, and the topics that we've gone through and all of that, I almost want to do one of our recap episodes again, but we, yeah, we won't it's do almost that time yet. to do a recap because we have had a lot of diverse <laughs> topics so far this season. And today is no different, right? Today we're, yeah, we're totally. diving into a topic that we haven't talked about this season yet. Yeah. Well, we haven't talked about this much at, at all on the podcast, which I think is is great because <laughs> I got to be honest with you. This is something that I don't know a whole lot of about. So I'm going to learn a ton today um, from our uh, from our guest today. He's going to teach us a lot for sure. Well, let's welcome Kisan Patel. He is the CEO of Deal Room, a mergers and acquisition lifecycle management platform. And uh, you know, welcome Kisan. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. How are you doing? We're doing, doing well. well. Yeah, well. we're really excited to talk to you and and learn a lot about M and A. You know, it's something we touched a little bit um, in season one of our show. We had an episode of you know selling or buying a company, but that's different than M and A. Um, and we definitely want to pick your brain on that. But one of the fun things we enjoy doing is because you are the CEO of your company, you started a company, kind of learn a little bit about how you got into it and what's been your life cycle in kind of evolving the company to where it's at today. Sure. I, I feel that it started off as a pretty typical founder story. I spent about 10 years working in M&A as an advisor helping companies either buy other businesses or sell assets they have. In that experience, you get familiar with the pain points and challenges of managing M&A. With that, I looked over into uh, the software industry when I was getting involved with a startup that didn't pan out the way I wanted it to, but I was working with the engineering team to manage building our product and got familiar with the way they were utilizing project management tools to manage developing software. I kept thinking to myself, why don't we have anything like this for M&A? This would have solved <laughs> a lot of the complexities and challenges. So there's a little bit of familiar with the problems, but also borrowing or taking inspiration from another industry. That's when I took that to start Deal Room in 2012 with a goal of bringing project management software to the industry and that product evolved from managing the due diligence part of M&A to also the integration component or stage and pipeline management to become a full lifecycle management solution. That's where we're at today, where we primarily serve corporations, a billion plus market cap or private equity backed rollups that are doing three or more acquisitions a year. These are a product to run the whole process, start to finish, one portal, manage all the activities. Uh, to get there was a hell of a struggle. And <laughs> and screw well, now, up. now we're talking. I got to hear this story. Well, yeah, so you got to hear. It, 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 it wasn't success right out of the gate. <laughs> now, this is like at least five years of just dealing with some brutal headbanging your wall uh, challenges. <laughs> I think starting from, I, I feel like every entrepreneur has this where you have a vision, an idea, a product you want to take to market. 
and you just want to rush to get product to market. Uh, and there's a lot of things that you should do. One, like validate what you're building. Um, I, I, I think there's that part, but then also to build a good product is a capability of its own to actually have a, uh, engineering team that can build a good product. Yeah. Think of like a restaurant. If you have a restaurant where all the cooks are terrible, you're going to turn out a pretty crappy product. And <laughs> maybe if you're in a tourist destination, you can like survive off of, you know, but not if you're in a local community and you want I've to been to a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Maybe you can survive. It doesn't matter. It's part so, of the So, is that one of your biggest challenges is to find the right engineers to work on the product in the beginning? Big time. Because I, I didn't know. I, I, I think. Well, we, I was very fortunate in this one. I, I think prior company I was working on, I learned that quickly. That was really, really important. I think for us, we went really lean with a team that was super scrappy. But their skill set, they were capable of rapid prototyping, so which allowed us to keep our expenses low and, and allow, them, allow us to get a longer runway, runway to get to product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you with a question here because how did you figure out to, to find the right people like what, what was the solution there at the end like how, how did you actually get this product to market by finding the right group like what did you well, we, learn there we worked with the team to prototype and we t- took basically a prototype market out there and we had to go through some serious iterations because when we first started you start with this idea of what you want to take to market and you make complicated it, call it feature creep and you build something really <laughs> massive and complicated right. and you take that market and you wonder why it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you got to go back to the drawing board and we had to go through that where we had to rediscover and understand the problems that we're solving from the customer's perspective. So really, really understand how they talk about it, how they, where it falls in their levels of priority the language they use to describe it and all those things really validate. We know exactly what we're solving for and for who. Uh, then, then we got on the right track to start iterating a solution that was meaningful to the customer. Uh, when you have a product that's crashing nearly every day while you're managing a hundred plus million dollar transaction on there, <laughs> that's a good sign that yeah. we need to retool and rethink about how yeah. we're engineering our product. And that's where, I was fortunate enough to run into a person that was more of a senior level engineer that helped us solve some of the media problems, then also helped us build a engineering team with the skill set to build for scale. And with that, we would re- we'd rebuilt this application with more of a uh, architecture to scale. They'll call it microservices, where you take this monolithic application break it down into smaller applications that talk to each other. And it's not as uh, heavy to operate as having it all as one, one big app. And then doing that, that's where it allowed us to put in these best practices, update the underpinning technologies we're using and built this thing to really be able to scale. And that's an ongoing thing. A lot of people don't realize that as well. You can't yeah. hire, it's not you build an app and it's done. No, it's a living, breathing thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, totally. It's got to keep evolving, otherwise, you know, you're going to get passed by because there's there's competitors out there that are always looking at what you're doing. Then you've solved a problem. I mean, literally, what you did is you identified that there was this missing piece in M and A transactions, and you know, 
you you figured out that there's a void, right? In the way transactions were happening prior to your software, a lot of companies were dealing with inefficiencies. And what what your platform provides is, you know, eliminating those inefficiencies and, you know, better access to information and better tools to collaborate. And, you know, up until the point where you you created this, there really wasn't too much out there besides picking up the phone and emails and texting and, you know, doing that typical thing and, you know, sharing files and that type of thing. But your platform really streamlines this whole process for them. I think that was our market opportunity is that we saw a sizable market uh, that was highly inefficient and the tools that were using, they were paying way too much for it. They really weren't adding that much value. So we looked at, at this industry as a massive opportunity to create value, that we could create a substantial amount of value for all these companies that we could work with. One, uh, two, we can dominate this. We can get in there and actually be number one. We see a path to be top in, in this sector. As we have advanced in creating our capabilities to problem solve with even the product, we saw, find, uh, find more problems to solve, increase the capability. We're also identifying new business lines. So going back in the business where we had to first solve for how do you validate the problem, which is essentially creating a very tight feedback loop with your customer. We talked to the customer from the very beginning about their problem. We're building a solution with their feedback. As we build a solution, we keep getting their feedback. We go back to them and visit their feedback and talk about more problems they have and build a solution <laughs> and keep getting their feedback yeah. and keep doing that. Uh, rinse and repeat. And that, that's the course. You have to develop that capability of listening to your com- customer, not yourself. I look at our product right. today. I don't think even 1% is ideals for me. It's all feedback loop from yeah. this yeah. work of customers. And that, I mean, that's totally the way to do it. And it, it's like, that's... It's like one of those things that you don't realize sometimes when you're developing a product or when you're coming up with something new because you're so into it and then you start building it for yourself and not for your customers. You know, like I've seen that mistake made with with businesses time and again. And it, it's it's such well, a valuable lesson well, to remember who you're building it for. Well, here's and the other thing, though. You know, I, I worked for a company, uh, you know, when I was in tech and we had a really, really cool product. We were, we were a kind of a a newer company and we had large clients, right? NBC was our client. McDonald's was our client. Um, you name it. HBO was our client. We had these large clients and these clients were so large. They would say, Hey, we need this. And then we would change the product literally for each individual client. And mm. we never had something that we could just sell <laughs> because right. we're customizing something for yeah. every single person, every single company. So there is a there's there is a fine line and figuring out that balance, right? Yeah, totally. There there is. Uh I, I think that I'd add this is the easy part, by the way. You know, building the product <laughs> is the easy part. Uh compared to your actual distribution go to market. Right. That's the freaking really hard part. So here we are. I took you through the first two years of struggles. We had a whole nother three years of struggles to really dial this in. I don't know if it's the the default or by assumption that we started doing what the incumbents were doing. We tried to copy them, build a sales team to go direct, you know, get, and realize that was a big mistake. These guys had much deeper pockets. Mm-hmm. They armed their sales reps with these uh, virtually infinite expense cards that were weapons, machine guns against our sales team. And they were getting slaughtered because when you can take your client out, 
to uh, Michelin star restaurants and get them in the hottest clubs, you know, they tend to want to return that favor back to you. And this really old style of selling was what was dominating and to come in and compete and realizing that who you're selling to at the time, which we focused on investment banks, they weren't incentivized to optimize their process. We were going after the raw market. We're again, same thing, following the encumbrance that focused on this transactional market mm-hmm. with investment banks. So we had to learn again, again, through really the discovery and having those qualitative conversations with an approach to understand and focus on where the problems are and what the value means to that person. We shifted and focused on corporates where we really found our early adopters. Uh, then learning how to sell to them is a whole other thing. Right. Because, you know, learning <laughs> the product, learning how to sell. So how oh, many yeah. years do you think it took before things started really turning around for your company? About five years. Around 2017, things started shifting. We started really getting in the track of a cadence of customer acquisitions, logos. Uh, around that time, a friend of mine encouraged me to start a podcast. Uh, and I took the idea with a lot of <laughs> emphasis on, on encouraging us to do it. And you created a podcast with a goal of it being a platform that enabled practitioners in the industry to be able to share lessons learned. Mm. The, again, we're trying to solve a problem. The problem we identified after we started working with a series of corporates was in our industry, there's this larger underpinning problem in that the industry itself is very siloed and disconnected, which ha- means it has a lack of standardization and best practices. All these companies have their own way about thinking and approaching M&A, which made it challenging for us to work with them because there wasn't consistency. Right. And we thought, where's the evidence? How do they know what they're doing actually works? And the idea was to use this podcast so we can create a series of these qualitative interviews, same thing we're doing with these feedback loop discovery calls, be able to identify the patterns and and find where there are these proven techniques in the industry, be able to document it. And that that over time turned us full-blown media business. One of the notable assets we published was a book called Agile M&A based on case studies with Google and Alassian and how they utilize agile techniques stemming from their engineering culture and applied it to M&A with great success. We published that book as a framework and continue to keep it as an open source effort and add additional techniques to it that are coming from experienced practitioners to really build this resource in the industry of here are these techniques, they're proven, they're, people are using them and can validate it and allowing others to get access to incorporate it into their practice. Um, so it's, it's interesting, but when we start doing that with the industry, you're putting a lot of content out there. Again, we weren't competing on the paid ads because we did bootstrap and have the money to do that. <laughs> and we played the long game on it and say, Hey, we know it's going to take longer. But once we st- really started seeing the results, it was amazing because we knew it's only going to get better. That SEO, mm-hmm. you don't see the results for six to nine months. Right. Anything we started hitting some strides and seeing our numbers really go up. We're like, guys, this is only going to get, let's keep it. It motivates you to keep doing it. Yeah, and then, totally. then you, yeah, you got to put good yeah. quality content. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's when that media allowed us to build our marketing function in a way that really contributes tailwind to the main business of selling mm-hmm. our, our product solutions. Now we see that real funnel where we, we look at it as the three tiers. Here's your top funnel where you're providing the industry resources on a high level that can 
benefit anybody that's saying, hey, if you're interested in upping your M&A game, here's a free book, here's resources. We actually have an online school we now run so you can learn the practical how-tos. Then you get into that second layer where it's more specific what challenges you're currently facing and get into whether it's the project management part or whatever skill areas, then you can tackle it from the bottom and say, funnel it to specific solutions that can help solve those problems. Nice. Uh, you know, and, and what I'm hearing here is it's like you sh- came up with an idea, you struggled to get it going, then you figured it out and you, you know, and it's, and it's rolling. You've figured that out of like, Hey, the struggles of getting something out there and then doing it. It's like the pain the next time is a lot less. <laughs> hey, um, as a podcast host, you know, that sometimes, uh, you got to add commercials into podcasts. So we're, we're going to do that real quick. <laughs> when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. Thanks for listening and subscribing to DIY for Business. It's Russ and Greg with you today. Okay, well, first of all, we, we, we learned about the struggles that uh, Keyson had in starting his business. He's the founder of Deal Room and, and uh, a, a podcast, a, a bunch of other things. You, you, you founded <laughs> and, and worked quite a bit in the uh, M&A space. Um, first of all, uh, your podcast. If somebody wants to find your podcast, we should probably get that out there because we didn't say the name of it. Sure. It's called M&A Science and it's on most podcast feeds or can be found on mascience.com. Okay. And we'll, we'll put a link to that in the description of this podcast as well. So those listening to this uh, can continue to learn more from you. Okay. So you've been doing this for years. So you've covered plenty of different topics. We, we kind of want to get into the basics of, sure. uh, of mergers and acquisitions. So let, let's, let, I guess, kind of start us out here with, with giving us kind of the, the, the 101 class, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got two sides of the table. You buy a company or, or you're selling a company. Uh, we can start with why you would buy a business. Yeah. You know, let's, let's start there. The first thing you want to do is flush out your strategy and understand what that is. If it's expanding in markets, if it's acquiring capabilities to create new business lines, if it's to take a, a roadmap that you have and bridge the gaps or accelerate that roadmap, there's, there should be this strategy that's well-defined. When you look at M&A, it's a tool to use against the strategy that can we leverage acquiring a business or assets of a business to be able to execute that strategy. Mm-hmm. It's got to be clear because sometimes people jump the gun, they get jump the gun and they get M&A happy they want to go acquire things and then figure out the strategy. That's right. not good. Right. You don't want to do that. <laughs> we, we've seen big be... companies do that. I mean, yeah. it, Microsoft has done that with various products. I mean, there's been plenty out there. Like all, at all levels, it does mm-hmm. happen. Uh, yeah. And sometimes it, there's different things getting combative that we can get into, but that people are incentivized otherwise. Uh, so I, I think the key thing is flushing out the strategy. And then when, when you do that, that's what allows you to go out and start thinking about the marketplace of businesses. You can build a market map and say, okay, here are these different verticals. There's where these companies would fall into. Uh, These are the ones that would be the good fit. Start mapping that out, but that's where you start your search process, identifying what are potential companies that would make sense to acquire. 
when, when you do that, then you would go out and reach out to those companies to get mm-hmm. some initial conversations. There's a time frame in mind. When you talk to founders and owners of mm-hmm. they, they might have a time frame in mind of when they would potentially sell the business. Other parts could be a get to know you to understand their business better then maybe even build the case on why it would create a lot of value for both organizations to do an acquisitions that we could come together when you understand that company's goals, we can help accelerate your goals. We can help you hit your financial goals faster and, then, mm-hmm. and understand that. And we kind of miss that sometimes where it's our agenda, but you got it, The deal has got to make sense for both sides of, of the table. Uh, so getting that time to understand that. And then a lot of times there's opportunities to date before committing to a marriage where we can do a partnership and and find something like that that really helps Mm -hmm. us understand each other's organizations, what the relationship's going to look like. The complexity of doing M&A is bringing two unique cultures together into one organization. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that doesn't work and it blows up and it's not a good thing. A lot of people quit and a lot of value gets lost. Uh, So that's one is is doing the, the courting process, really take time to understand that company. Now, there could be circumstances where it's, it's a little different. You may be presented an opportunity from an investment bank where they're running an auction process that's going to be highly competitive. And you need to make sure that that's something, one, you want to do. There's a lot of companies that don't participate in auctions because, again, they're competitive and you tend to pay a premium for those competitive processes. They're time compressed where you don't really have the time to, to get to know you, understand the culture, do a thorough diligence you're taking a lot more shortcuts, taking a bigger risk on, on those transactions. So understanding your sources of deals, because obviously you're sourcing stuff from your own search. You may be associated or networked with a bunch of investment banks that are bringing you opportunities. But you should also, within your company, have that strategy. So maybe you have product managers. They might actually help you identify businesses as well that, that would fit into that strategy. Again, that's why that strategy is so important. When you get to the conversation and the point where there is interest, that's when you would start requesting some diligence information to understand the business enough to come up with uh, a financial uh, number that you would put on that business. So you would model it out, understand what kind of synergies that you would drive from this acquisition, be it cost synergies from eliminating or combining some roles in, in the company, reducing the software subscriptions and things of that sort. And then revenue synergies, what, what additional revenue are we going to make when we combine these companies to justify that value? Because you are likely going to pay a premium for them to incentivize board shareholders or whatnot to conduct the transaction. Well, usually that uh, initial terms, the price and some of the general timeframes uh, in, in terms that you would transact on will be presented in an LOI or letter of intent. And when that letter of intent is engaged, then you go in through this period of confirm- confirmatory diligence. Uh, and that's when it's really pedal to the metal. You as a buyer are going to go thoroughly through this company to look for risks and make sure there's no big surprise. You don't want to close a deal and find out, boom, you missed something and you paid way too much for the deal or something went wrong. So you're really working with all your different functions and maybe external consultants to go through it's more than financials, the operations, the, the HR components. Maybe you got a bunch of people on visas, and if you transact, you can't sponsor those visas, and you're going to lose those people and disrupt their lives, and that's not a good thing. You want to understand all these risks as much as possible. Also, plan for how you're going to integrate this company while you're doing this as well, so that you know once you buy this company, the hard part begins once the deal closes. Mm-hmm. We need to 
take all these assumptions from our investment thesis, be able to execute it to capture this intended value. That's when really you need to make sure teams are aligned. They're motivated around this. And this is where the real most difficult part of M&A comes because it's, it's about people. How do you get mm-hmm. people to collaborate? And How do you get people to put up with all this magnitude of change management that's about to happen in their yeah, own organization? Totally. Well, because totally. Well, was, I, I would I would guess both companies probably have different processes, right, in management styles and trying to get those two, you know, teams to start working together. And I guess, you know, in a lot of cases, there's probably elimination of some positions, right? Because there's, you know, duplication. So, yeah, I just want your feedback on, like, how do companies go through this as smoothly as possible? <laughs> because it's a difficult, it's a difficult challenge. Yeah. I mean, so try to try to get as, as brief as you can here, because there, there's a lot to unpack with this. This is probably the biggest trend we've seen in the last five years is M&A is an industry shifting from a finance focus to a people focus. What that means is when there's a deal, there's usually this end state in mind. And there should be. Sometimes there isn't, which is a really big problem. But you should have an idea of where you're trying to take things. What's the ultimate goal here, this end state? Bring it to the front end of the process so that executives from both sides of the table and companies can socialize around it and get it get aligned. And also, at that time, you want to bring in this integration leader that's going to be responsible for executing to deliver this end state and start developing an outline of a go-to-market. What's that gonna look like when we come together as an organization? What's that gonna look like to the customer? What's that gonna customer experience gonna look like? Because each respected company has their way of creating value for their customers. That's why they exist. When they come together, it's it's gonna be different. What's that gonna look like? Uh, having that initial outline would help to the, the executive on the, side that's getting acquired, understand how they're going to contribute after the deal's closed. A lot of times you don't have that communication and they give them a check that's big enough. You're never going to see that person again. They got money to go buy an island. They're gone. You, you know, <laughs> so you need to really get this level of alignment. Yeah. So there, there's that sort of fundamental component and keeping the customer in mind of what that journey is going to look like for them. Then it comes this culture piece, which starts with values, understanding each organization's values, because you have common phrases about integrity and discipline being used, but can you understand what that really means to each organization? That's what's going to allow you to understand culture and leadership approaches. When you see some distinctly different cultures, do you respect them for the uniqueness or do you see some stark contrast that may potentially create conflict? You have a very top-down management approach in another organization that is very much bottoms up, that's not going to integrate together very well. Uh, Maybe we need to rethink our plan. Maybe we're not going to fully integrate. Maybe we'll do a different level, lighter level of integration to allow this organization to have some of that autonomy and preserve that management approach so that they can foster that creativity or engineering uh, skill that allows them to do what they do and produce the results. Because if we try to force them into changing, it was going to be very disruptive. And now they're going to, people are like, I didn't sign. I mean, it's a disruption anyways. People come to work for an organization when they get acquired, they didn't choose to work for that other new organization. And there's, there's yeah. sort of already uh, a, a bit of that, that, that disappointment or, or, you know, feel that are thrown off. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important to take that into consideration as we plan the change and the communication why we're doing the deal, where's the value we see, be able to communicate that to the customers, the vendors, and, and the employees. Right. Um, yeah, the, the one time that I've 
kind of dealt with something like this was back in my my radio days, right? The, the radio station was owned by a local company. It, it merged with a bigger company and then a bigger company and then a bigger company. Um, and <laughs> there was one of those that just went so wrong. You know, it was just like, they, they basically, okay, well, we don't need multiple people here during this time. We don't need this. We don't need, you know, multiple marketing directors. We don't need multiple, you know, whatever it was. So they cut the team massively. But what happened was they were running it so poorly that a lot of the team afterwards left. So it was like two rounds of turnover, the turnover at the, the merge and then, or actually acquisition in this case, and then the turnover post acquisition, like, I mean, it, it was, it was not a fun place to be after um, the acquisition happened. So I'm, I'm glad that you, <laughs> you mentioned the focus on people because being one of those people at one point in my life, that, that, that was tough. That's your biggest risk in M&A is attrition. If people yeah. frustrated with this change and they quit. Right. Yeah, I would guess that um, that usually the acquiring company probably has a little more control over what the future is going to look like, right? Because they're the one that's acquiring. And I kind of want to get your feedback on that. Uh, but we do need to take a quick break. So when we come back, we'll be back with Keesan Patel, CEO of Deal Room. And we're back on DIY for Business on the best business network heard on Electricast Media. Where today we're interviewing Keeson Patel and we're talking mergers and acquisitions. And before we went to break, we we're kind of talking about, you know, when an acquisition happens. There's there's two parties, right? There's the, the purchasing party and, there, you know, there's the company that's being purchased. And my guess would be the company that's doing the buying pretty much controls kind of what the end game is going to look like after that, after it happens. But I want your take is like, how do those two parties work better during the transaction to make sure that after the acquisition happens, the management teams can work better together? The buyer has leverage because they're the ones cutting a check. Right. So that that's a given they They ultimately have leverage. But you ultimately need the seller to work well with you to make the deal successful. And that's where that creating a positive people experience is important. Uh, you need to be able to work with that company, create a level of transparency, help them understand your organization, where they're going to fit into that organization when the deal's done. Do you, and, and, just to jump in real quickly, do you see a lot of deals where the where the the company that's getting purchased says, "Hey, I'm going to walk away from this deal unless you work with the people that I have in place, or you work with our management style, or you know, put those conditions on the table before the uh, before the acquisition actually happens, and it actually works." <laughs> it it that might be your earlier part of negotiating. What they want to understand which buyer to go with, especially if you're running an auction process, you may be presented multiple buyers and those factors will be part of your consideration when you get a sense of how these companies are going to come together and you can see, oh, they're acquiring us as a standalone. This one could accelerate our growth. You might have a growth private equity fund that's going to buy either a minority or majority position and then let you stick around and let you have another exit down the road. 
which allows you to take some chips off now and potentially have another be part of an, another secondary exit. There's those type of factors in the way you're presented with the general terms and potential of outcomes that you will allow you to go in one direction or another. You may be retiring, you just want to check it out. Uh, and, and that's the end of it. Or you may be very much considered about the team and their future. And that's going to emphasize you for a different direction that might not be the highest price. It really, really depends on, and that's a whole conversation we can talk about on the sell side of starting with a strategy on your sell side, that you want to be able to clarify what that looks like. And that allows you to look at long-term versus short-term approach, uh, whether we're going to take the long-term of courting potential acquirers on the, the other side and understand those, the, the similar approach like on the buy side, doing partnerships, really spending the time to get to know the organization, to get a good sense of how they, the real working marriage would look like, uh, to the short view of, hey, I got a board. They just want to get the highest dollar possible. They are pushing to work with an investment bank. We're going to go through, do a bake-off, interview you know, three to six different investment banks, have them pitch to us, and we're going to evaluate them based on experience, other transaction, what buyers they know, make sure we right-size it, and then we'll uh, have them run an auction process. They'll help us organize, create a big book of information about our company, a teaser sheet, and they'll send it out, that teaser sheet, to potential acquirers, have them sign an NDA. They sign the NDA, which sometimes gets negotiated based on who they are, if they're a direct competitor or not. And then they'll come and look at that SIM, the confidential information memorandum that has more information. They might ask for some other diligence things so that they can prepare the financial offer. And then that offer gets presented to the um, to the, the seller of the company and that advisor will help guide them. And it's intense. When we move to conformitary diligence. It gets extremely intense, especially for a company <laughs> selling. They never estimate this, how much work an intense uh, yeah. sell, m and sell side process, highly distractive. Distraction management team, they're going to get distracted enough. They may miss their target goals. Uh, it's not a good thing. So the bank I've, I've, should ideally help you alleviate some of that overhead so you can stay focused on running the business. And then they'll take that to the close, like we talked about from the, the buy side. Yeah, and sometimes it's, it's a timely process. I, it, it's not like this happens quickly sometimes. It, it, it can drag on. And this market's highly competitive. Deals are moving off the shelf. But... Some of these processes, it really depends on the nature of it. You may have additional steps if you're in a highly regulated business that you have to get regulatory approval. Uh, if your nature, public company, you're selling to public company, they have different approaches as well because large companies tend to have more people and they tend to have to get their own approvals done internally. Uh, and then there's some firms that just pull all the brakes and really move extremely fast on opportunities. But they might not be paying top dollar. It could be some trade-offs. So there, there's a whole variance of buyers and factors depending on the industry, market conditions, and how fast these transactions move. But you mm -hmm. see one extreme to the other. You see deals get done within a week. Deals take up to a year <laughs> or multiple years to get done. So if a business owner, you know, they're, they're, let's say we'll, we'll go with the retirement because that's the easy route, right? Like, let's say, you know, I, I, we could get into other things, but it seems like, okay, retiring, I just want the check. <laughs> I'm done. If you're to that point in your business where you just want to sell your business, how do you make the decision of just selling to, you know, some random buyer or being acquired by another company? Like what goes into that to, to make that decision? I, it goes back to like what's important to you. 
because if we're looking at, I just want to get the cash, you may want to work with an advisor to help you go through that process, to help you review potential suitors, build a competitive process that mm-hmm. would encourage those to pay a competitive price. That, that's probably the direction I would go. If it's more of, I'm going to play the long game on this and get to know potential folks, get maybe my priorities more about the team and giving them a good future, mm-hmm. then it probably makes more sense to play the long game on it. Uh, I think if you're prioritizing getting the top dollar, I would probably work with an advisor to create a competitive environment to make sure you get yeah. top dollar. They're incentivized on it too. They want their cut. I uh, right. tend to get a little sticker shock when you see how much you end up paying for that advisor, but <laughs> a good advisor will deliver yeah, your worth return. It. Yeah. yeah. They're going to get you maybe 10, 15% more on your business value. And then you're, you won't, as long as you acknowledge that if you're a little hard headed and just say, man, that's more than what I made the last couple of years, then you, you, know, you might, uh, <laughs> you might right. not see it that way. So it, it's tough. It's, it's a very, no single direct answer. A good advisor is well worth their weight uh in uh any premium material but a bad advisor i'll tell you can even screw you worse than just running a deal with a good lawyer that's a must is make sure you got a good m&a lawyer i would probably prioritize that above anything else is get a lawyer not your general business lawyer get somebody that has done m&a deals in the industry with similar prices i I would do that maybe just go far as talking to one or two other folks they've worked with you know, Russ and I were just in a conversation earlier this week about fair market value. And, you know, each industry is a little different and, and each transaction is a little different about how you evaluate that. But what are some of the basic things that most transactions look at uh, for, for fair market value of companies? You know, I, I don't like looking at this way because you start thinking about the cookie cutter approaches and you got your different forecast models, discounted cash flows, I would really instead put that to the side. Let the finance person come make the pretty models. At the end of the day, it's a chart that goes up and to the right. Think about the buyer because <laughs> the value is unique to the buyer. That each buyer has their own perception of the value and ultimately it is unique to what that buyer would pay for it which varies buyer to buyer. Uh, if you have a private equity firm and they're, it's their first investment into that industry, what they'll call a platform play because they're going to buy this as a first investment and stack other businesses on it, they're probably going to try to make it on a price where they can justify the financial returns, especially if they're leveraging debt from a bank. They want to be able to service that debt. So they're going to be looking at maybe an EBITDA multiplier or something of that sort. Now, if you have a large company, say Google, coming in and they're looking at this thing and saying, hey, this product would fit well in our, I don't know, I keep renaming it, their, their workspace product, their suite, and saying, hey, if we bought this product, uh, we'd be able to distribute it to 100 million users right off the bat, right? Uh, that would, now we're looking at the value from a totally different view of this would allow us to actually create this add-on for five bucks a month to these users times 100 million. Uh, we could probably make whatever fifty million dollar revenue from this in the next three years. Now they got a very different. They're looking at the synergies of what they can utilize with their existing business uh, and value they can create from there. Very unique, different view of value from their perspective. And that's why it's important to think of it 
think of the valuation of your company through that buyer's lens and understand. And then, then it gets fun. It gets a fun conversation yeah. because you can be like, hey, yeah. hey, let me articulate that. Let me help you understand the value to your company. Uh, you know, if you don't see it, because I see it, I see like, the, you know, what you guys could do with this. Right. If you don't see it, then maybe we shouldn't be working on a deal together. But I, I think it's more about that, get that, that uh, understanding from their lens. Then, yeah. uh, That's a great point of view. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I like I, otherwise you throw yeah. everything else out the window, man. I don't like all these valuations where people throw it around. You know, you right. get some, they do their comps <laughs> off of market comps that aren't related and you're doing mm-hmm. transactional uh, comps, that are, you know, so I, I hate looking at the templated uh, valuation models. I'd rather really be strategic about it and think about who we're talking to here and what it means to them. Keith, right. and it, this interview has just been so much fun and so entertaining and informative. Uh, if people want to learn more about what you do and your company, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and do a little research on their own? Sure. Our website, mascience.com, has a ton of free content on there. And also to mention, last year we started a diversity scholarship to encourage those women and folks of diverse background to explore careers in M&A, where they can get access to our Key Academy program for absolutely free. Um, so good website to check out. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, gentlemen. And thank you for listening and subscribing to DIY for Business, a part of the Best Business Network and Electrocast Media. The subjects that we cover on the podcast are selected with the goal of helping your business grow. All of the information provided is opinion-based, and you may want to consult a professional to discuss your exact business situation. Greg and I want your company to succeed, and we're happy to take your questions. Uh, We would also love to hear your suggestions for future episodes. If there's an area where you need solid business advice or help, let us know. We might be able to build an entire episode around it. And hey, Steve might know somebody that can help you out as well. Big, big connections there. Uh, You can reach out to us by sending us a direct message on Twitter or visiting our website, DIYforbusinesspodcast.com. Both of those links are in the podcast description. We also love to talk to business owners. If you would like to join us on a show, please do reach out to us as well. We thank you for listening and subscribing to DIY for Business, where you are not alone. Our world is changing faster than we know it, leading us into a technological revolution that's shaping our future in real time. Join us to meet these innovative startup leaders who are creating mind-blowing new AI applications, autonomous robot systems, and so much more. I'm Johnny Kaplan, your host on the Tech Talk Revolution podcast. Electric Acid. Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, host of Who the Fuck, a show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I?